I will share with you very briefly some of the concerns that I have had regarding translation studies. And the great gift to Susan at that time in 1985 was already I had translated a book of 400 pages before I met her. Already I had been presenting conference papers in translation uh, in India. But she was the one who sensitized me and indeed a number of other people to the fact that though there has always been translation in a big way, there also needs to be translation studies. That we need to take it more seriously, more systematically, and to pay the kind of attention and respect to it that we hadn't paid until then. So the kind of questions that I've been asking myself, sometimes together with Susan and sometimes in my solitary splinter in India among 1.3 billion people, is... First of all, the kind of popularity of the term translation that has come about over the last uh, two or three decades. The term translation has become far too popular, far too widely used, I think. And some meaning seems to have been drained off it because of that popularity. It's a kind of semantic explosion of the word translation to the detriment of some aspects of translation as we have known it. Um, it's a bit like politics, the word politics. Now we see politics everywhere, except where Obama and Cameron are concerned. <laughs> That's governmentality or just government, if we don't wish to invoke Foucault. But the rest is politics. Similarly, translation. Uh, we may be in danger by overusing this term of killing the golden goose in many ways. There is, uh, and uh, Susan got onto it very early and staged a kind of public a boxing match between my dear friend and her dear friend John Drakakis and myself on the topic of cultural translation, which is the new buzz phrase. And uh, the one thing I know about cultural translation is that it all happens in just one language. Unlike literary translation, unlike what I call real translation, for which you need to know two languages at least. That's what I hold against this new development, that this actually encourages monolingualism, smug monolingualism, still calling it translation. And uh, it does damage to all the 5,999 languages of the world apart from English. Translation was never meant to do that. Uh, there is, John was telling me last night that he was invited afterwards after a iPod broadcast debate to Belfast where they are working heavily on cultural translation, and I had the pleasure of telling him that I was invited to, though on separate dates. <laughs> they did not want blood on the floor there. <laughs> Only Susan can manage that. <laughs> and uh, there's a wonderful academic and a wonderful human being there called Paul Johnston, who has written a book to the effect on cultural translation, in which he says in his own contribution, he's edited it, he says in his own contribution, that what you and I call translation, it entering from one language into another, is so worthless as to be comparable to photocopying. These are the times we live in. These are the threads to what translation has represented to so many of us and for which we have devoted, often on at least, several decades of our life. There is a crisis in translation studies uh, to that effect. Uh, and there is another one. One other aspect of this kind of translation is uh, 
cultural translate is is it's a variety of cultural translation which is writing about a country about which you know a little or perhaps quite a lot and calling it translation calling original writing translation nobody had thought in the good bad days in the bad old days of translation that this would happen to call something translation was to call it second rate to call uh, to praise the translation one one needed to say it doesn't even read like translation and that was supposed to be praised for now but now for original writing to try and pass off as translation <coughs> is a new phenomenon translating la translating india translating whatever without knowing the original very often or knowing it only very imperfectly so that the act should not be called translation i've been doing a little bit of work on kipling recently i've rediscovered him and uh, he is all the terrible things that people say about him but he's also a bit more that's my discovery and what is more is you know people talk in post colonial terms of uh, mr kurds who dies in the darkest spots of dark africa and uh, conrad's phrase the horror the horror kipling discovered the horror of india and made it fictionally manifested through some of his, his white protagonists a long time before that and a lot more frighteningly than conrad could kipling knew jingoistic champion of the rash that he was that the british could never possess india and india would keep coming up and striking back and would possess many englishmen who were there to rule it these are some of the most scary stories of relating to the whole imperial enterprise and unfortunately kipling is not best known for them he's known for the jungle books and he's known for kim in which he evaded the raj as i have argued recently uh and not not for those 10 or 12 stories which are absolutely in the top rank it seems to me but in writing about kim i was struck by the fact that kim among other things is not only a hybridized character a highly hybridized character a, a person of pure white blood who un, unlike other children that were had got a bad fortune to be born in india uh, was actually uh, not brought up there not sent back to england at the age of 5 or 6 as kipling himself was but kim was allowed to wander the native streets of india and thus become hybridized in a true sense uh and when the and he is he's more indian than uh, british when the novel picks him up at the age of 13 and then follows him for four years after that till 17 uh there is a use of english which is hybridized and which is a variety of translation which i think is more effective than many other kinds of translation that we hear about in kim and on your handout i've given a few sentences right at the top which are from kipling uh and what like of man was thy disciple this is not good english but this is perfect in thee <laughs> i wish new air and water i wish to go some place else i wish to live some place else that's what kim saying uh, kim saying this in the first chapter now this sentence in hindi is uh किसी और कोई और आबो हवा चाहिए मुझे आबो हवा इज नॉट ओनली हिंदी आबो हवा इज पर्शन एंड अरबिक 
Abu Hawa is a compound phrase, an idiomatic phrase that we have always had. And Kim, having lived in India for 13 years and being fluent in the language, says this, I wish new air and water. Then there are other characters uh, whose Hindustani is very limited, unlike Kim's. Kim is hit by another white boy whose only advantage over Kim is, he calls Kim a nigger, even though Kim is white. Because he's just come out of England as a drummer boy in a regiment. Therefore, he's whiter than Kim, who is, in Homibaba's phrase, not quite not white. So he's, he uh, beats him up, and Kim says, you have hit me kicks all over my body. This is, again, perfect Hindi. And then he comes across two missionaries who capture him for the white race and send him to school and separate him from the Lama. And he comes back to the Lama, Kim, and he says, they cannot talk Hindi. They are only uncurried donkeys. <laughs> Anybody who cannot talk Hindi is that in Kim's eyes. Uh, I would not say that uh, it's pretty much the same in my eyes, but uh, that would be sheer chauvinism. Then at one point, Kim says, uh, sorry, Kipling says, Kim translated in his own mind from the vernacular to his clumsy English. Kim, uh, Kipling is, has written in Kim a most remarkable novel in which a white character is translating into clumsy English from his far more fluent and idiomatic vernacular in the novel, not only once, not only here, I have, according to my own count that I have made, seven instances, found seven instances of Kim translating, either in his own mind or openly articulating the translation so as to mediate between other different characters in the, in the book, and five other places in the novel where the word interpreter or interpreting is used again regarding Kim. A dozen instances of his actually translating, not how you would expect, but the other way around. He had, of course, an Indian upbringing, and his, uh, he recalled in his autobiography that when his <coughs> ayah, the maid, the nursemaid, sent him to the dining room at the end of the day to say goodbye to the parents, she would tell him, and this is Kipling in his autobiography, speak English now to Papa and Mama. So one spoke English, haltingly translated out of the vernacular idiom that one thought and dreamed in. In Kim, there are characters who know and speak to themselves, if not also to others, a whole variety of languages. Hindi, Urdu, Hindustani, Punjabi, Tibetan, Chinese, Pushtu, and offstage, presumably, also Uriya, Pahari, French, and Russian. There's 11 languages in, coexisting in one novel. And the sheer presumption on the part of Kipling, who is nothing if not a knowing writer, and therefore a somewhat off-putting, but also very impressive writer, is that he can handle 11 languages in one novel in an instance of true polyvocality with the help of some translation. The protagonist as translator. There are some other works in which we come across the translator as <coughs> protagonist, and I'm not persuaded by them. There is a novel called The Translator by Lala Abu Lala, uh, in which the translator just happens, the protagonist, a woman, the Sudanese woman living in Scotland, just happens to be a translator for two or three pages of the novel. Otherwise, she's in love 
with this Scottish man who teaches in the same department. <laughs> Ordinary enough story. But here is the protagonist actually functioning as translator time and again. I want to read out very briefly without going into any of the details what E.M. Foster did. He did not know an Indian language. He had lived in India for one year in two installments of six months each to complete the cycle of seasons before he wrote a novel about India. He does not pretend to know an Indian language. But this is another way of representing language in a multilingual location, which some people would find superior even to Kipling's. I'll read out just a paragraph and a bit towards, from towards the end of the novel. This is on the handout again. His, Aziz's, impulse to escape from the English was a sound one. They had frightened him permanently. You remember that he is charged with assaulting a white woman in a cave in the middle of the novel. And after that, he leaves British India. The British ruled directly only three-fifths of India. Two-fifths of India was semi-autonomous, where their writ did not run. So Aziz leaves British India and goes to princely India. Life passed pleasantly. And he read his Persian, wrote his poetry, had his horse, and sometimes got some shikar, meaning went out hunting. Now, this is the good life. This is a good medieval feudal Muslim life for Aziz, which he has longed for and which he could not have under the British. His poems were all in one topic, oriental womanhood. Bulbuls and roses would still persist. The pathos that defeated Islam remained in his blood and could not be expelled by modernities. In one poem, the only one funny old God Bole liked, Godbole is, of course, a school teacher. He is a Hindu with, I don't know, <laughs> with three capital H's perhaps, a caricature Hindu in Foster's depiction, uh, but a philosopher in his own way, unfathomable, as Hindu philosophy is supposed to be. That's why he's called funny old Godbole. Aziz had skipped over the motherland whom he did not truly love and gone straight to internationality. Now, this is pan-Islamism. Foster doesn't spell it out, but the internationalism is pan-Islamism. And yet, the very Hindu god Bole has another reaction to it. He says, ah, that is bhakti, my young friend. Bhakti is devotion to God, poetry written in devotion to God. And the Hindu says even the Muslim is doing it. And he says, and this is very good. Uh, India, who seems not to move, will go straight there while the other nations waste their time. And then we come to a little bit of translation. May I translate this particular one into Hindi, the major language of India, Aziz writes in Urdu. This is the mark of the highest approval. Not only poetic and emotional approval, but almost spiritual approval. It is bhakti, it is devotion. May I translate this one into Hindi? In fact, it might be rendered into Sanskrit almost. It's so enlightened. It's a comic remark on the part of funny old God Bole. But what Foster has done very concisely in this short passage is to tell you the whole histories of some of his characters by highlighting the language that they are closest to. No one spoke Persian. But Aziz is practicing his Persian again, recovering it again, because he's got his old self again. God Bole says it can be translated into Hindi, 
which is the devotion, which is the language has been for the last 500 years of Hindu devotion, Hindu devotional poetry. And then he says almost into Sanskrit, it can be translated almost into Sanskrit, <coughs> which is of course the language since 1500 BC of Hindu philosophy and devotion and so on. In one short paragraph, he tells you more about these characters and gives them a kind of a depth talking about the use of languages by them. I still have Rushdi, but we can talk about him anytime. <laughs> now, all that I wish to say, all that I wish to say about Rushdi in the short passages that I've given here are he's different from Foster and he's different from Kipling. There is a toss-up actually as to who knew India better, Kipling or Rushdi. They both lived in India for a similar length of time. Kipling for the first five years and then again for six and a half years. As, and working there. Not just staying there as a child, as an adult, working for two newspapers as a city reporter. And that gives you a different kind of knowledge. Rushdie as a privileged child in Bombay uh, from age one to age, from age zero to age 13. And then he comes to Britain and he goes to rugby and he goes to Trinity College, Cambridge and he marries a young lady called Teresa, whereupon he claims that he has married the English novel, and the rest is history. <laughs> the rest is fatwa and history. <laughs> well, the way he uses language and the way he translates the language in, uh, this is all from Midnight's Children, talak, 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 that's the second quotation. Talak, talak, talak. The English lacks the thunderclap sound of the Urdu, and anyway, you know what it means. I divorce thee, I divorce thee, I divorce thee. This is false bilingualism in my reading. This is fakery. If you know what I mean, why am I translating it? This is because pretending to write about India for Indians, Salman Rushdie is actually writing about India for people who don't know a thing about India and would therefore think him to be the greatest novelist coming from India. What I've been trying to talk about is the place of translation in the context of bilingualism and multilingualism. And how one kind of translation would lead you, especially if it's cultural translation, into more and more predominant and hegemonic and oppressive monolingualism. And another kind of multilingualism or even awareness, broad theoretical awareness, as in the case of Foster, would help you understand people and characters in a way that not many other indicators could because language constitutes us in a way that not many other things do. And that's why the transaction between languages through the process of translation is something that... Uh, is almost unequaled among other human activities. Thank you very much. <laughs>